Our scripture reading this morning is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and then verse 8 as we continue to look at the Beatitudes. The title of the sermon this morning is Biblical Cardiology. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the late 1990s, Joshua Harris wrote a book entitled, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And that book spurred a movement in evangelical Christianity, a movement that became known as purity culture. And evangelicals began engaging in courtship rather than dating. Young women were encouraged to wear purity rings on the fourth finger of their left hands, indicating their commitment to premarital sexual abstinence. And I remember the impact of that as a pastor in early uh, mid-2000s, uh, how that impacted the church. I remember seeing, I was next to a college campus, and I remember watching all how that was impacting the engagement of people as they uh, navigated all of that. In 2019, that kind of reemerged in kind of some interesting ways, this purity culture idea, in two ways. One, first of all, Joshua Harris, who wrote that book, which was, of course, quite a bestseller, he disavowed the book and its contents and also uh, disavowed his Christian faith as well. And during the same period of time, Lutheran pastor Nadia Bowles Weber uh, called out to women who were impacted by that purity culture movement and asked them to send in their purity rings, which she subsequently melted down and turned into uh, sculpture. Uh, <laughs> now, there are many things I could say about all of that stuff, but most relevant for our text this morning is this. That purity culture, that purity culture movement didn't bring about purity. That we know for sure. In fact, it often brought about some negative things like uh, oppression, uh, confusion, uh, even in cases, abuse. And the word pure remains a trigger word, right? Particularly for women, for young women, this idea of keep yourself pure. There's a lot of baggage around that whole entire word. But yet here in our text this morning, here in the Beatitudes, here in verse 8 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus drops the P word on us, right? He uses that word purity. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Jesus says that human flourishing requires purity. That in order to see God, you have to be pure. He brings it right to us. Is Jesus calling us to a purity culture? What is he saying? What is he teaching? What does he mean by this? How are we to be pure in heart? Jesus tells us it's important. How do we achieve it? Well, let's think about that together this morning. That's what I want to look at with you this morning. And the way I want to do that, the way I want to get at it, uh, understand what Jesus is talking about, is focusing on those two key words in the text. Those two key words, pure and heart. Let's look at those two words, understand what they mean, and then see if we can put this together and what it means for us as we try to be Christ followers here in the 21st century. 
Two words. The first one is pure. Now, the Greek word for pure is the word katharoi or katharos, and it had two predominant uses in the ancient world. One, it was used for the cleaning of clothes. It was a way you referred to getting a stain out of clothing. And it was also used in a military context. It was used for purging the military ranks of those who would be traitors, of those who were cowards, of those who were complainers. It was a way to purge the ranks. And so it implies, as we might gather, the removal of corruption, the removal of moral corruption, getting rid of something so that what remains is pure. And this is not so different from our own understanding of pure, right? We get this. Ivory soap, right? Ivory soap is 99 and 44 one hundredths pure soap. And in English, we have this word catharsis, right? That comes from that Greek word for purity, katharos. It comes from that very word, and it means a sense of emotional purging or emotional cleansing, a cathartic experience. So we get, well, what this word means. It's not hard for us to connect with the idea that it means cleansing or purging something, that which corrupts or defiles it. But one of the questions that come up is, how would Jesus' original audience, how would they understand it? You know, for example, in our culture, when I use that word pure, and I mentioned this whole purity culture movement, it might come into our mind immediately a connection between purity and sexuality or sexual ethic, right? We connect those things together in our mind. What would that original audience have thought? When Jesus used that word pure, how would they have understood it? Well, they too lived in a purity culture. Jews of the first century lived in a purity culture. They weren't forging you know, purity rings and things like that, but they did live in a purity culture. They believed in a purity culture, and they were particularly worried about external things, things external to themselves, rendering themselves impure, making them ceremonially unclean that they would touch someone or they would eat a food or do something outside of the law that would render them unclean. The first century Jews believed in what Craig Blomberg describes as contagious impurity. That means they thought of impurity as something that you could catch, like a transmissible disease, something external that was going to get you if you were not careful. So when Jesus used those words, blessed are the pure, they would have immediately thought about that, about being clean, about being free from this contagious impurity that comes from outside of themselves. So they would have been right with Jesus. They would have been nodding along. They would have been amen. Yes, blessed are the pure. But then Jesus does something that throws them off that would have sent their heads reeling or lead them into confusion because he adds another word, another concept to this purity. He uses that phrase, blessed are the pure in heart. And that little word, heart, would have, would have sent them into confusion. Now, why is that? That brings us to the second word, heart. What did that mean? What does the word heart mean here? 
Well, that Greek word translated heart is also one we're familiar with in, in English, right? It's the word cardia in Greek, and we have it all over the place. We have it in the title of the sermon, cardiology, echocardiogram, myocardial infarction, right? This is a word that we are familiar with in our language, and it carries two meanings for us. When we think of the heart, we think either of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, right? The little beaten heart, boom, boom, boom. We think of the muscle, the organ of the heart, this physical, anatomical thing. And the other way we think of heart is Valentine's Day, right? The sense of emotion, the sense of romance, the sense of being uh, something contrasted with our rational side of our being, the romantic side of ourselves. That's how we think of it. Anatomically, romantically, that's how we think of heart. But that's not how a first century person would have thought of heart. When Jesus used that word, they would have a very different understanding of it. For a first century Hebrew, the heart was the center of one's being. It was a combination not only of emotions, but of the rational sense of who we are, our minds. It would also embody the concept of our volition, our wills. So in that word heart comes together, what we would think of as our head and our heart. When Jesus used that word, his hearers would think of it as my, my rational, volitional, emotional center of who I am. The most internal part of my personality, my psyche. And that's where, they threw, that's where Jesus threw them off. Because, as I mentioned, they had always thought of purity as something out there, right? Something external to me, something out there would render me impure. Something that would touch me, something I would eat and take into me. But Jesus says, no, the problem isn't out there. And the call for purity isn't out there. It is in here, in you, in your heart, in that rational, emotional, volitional center of your being. In order to flourish, Jesus says. You need to be pure not only out there, but you need to be pure in here, in your heart. And he says that only those who are pure in heart will be able to see God. So he immediately ties it to this end of being in the presence of God. This picture of eschatological salvation, of arriving at the place of being able to see God. You need a pure heart. Now, most commentators agree that there is an intertextuality here, that Jesus is drawing upon Psalm 24, that great regal coronation psalm of, of uh, Psalm 24. And that psalm reads, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? In other words, who will see God? And the answer comes in that psalm, verse 4. Those who have clean hands, external, and pure hearts, internal. And Jesus says the same thing here in this beatitude. It is only those who have a pure heart, who can ascend the holy hill, who can enter the presence of God, who can see God. That's what Jesus says. And he said it to them and he says it to us. He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. These are the people who will be in the presence of the Lord. And so what that tells us is having a pure heart matters. Purity matters. 
So how do we get that, right? If this is the key, if this is the essential thing that you need to be able to see God, how do you get a pure heart? That's the question that is begged by the text. Well, let's give that some thought. Let's think about that. How do we acquire a pure heart? And does anyone know who Tony Stark is? My son, James, yes. The billionaire, superhero, Iron Man, played so admirably and well by Robert Downey Jr., right? What, what? And, and Iron Man, if you know about Iron Man, he's got this arc reactor in his chest. Why? <laughs> because he has a heart problem. He has a heart problem. And that's true of everyone that I am speaking to this morning. We all have a heart problem. It's not, of course, a medical heart problem, although some of us wrestle with those things too, but I'm not speaking in medical terms. I'm talking about a heart problem in that rational, volitional, emotional part of who we are, the inner core of our being, that thing that Jesus was talking about in this text. You know I love music. I like to quote musical lyrics in my sermons, and I'm trying to be more pastorally relevant. Uh, so I decided this morning I will quote a band that actually existed after the turn of this past century. <laughs> you know, most of my stuff is uh, pretty, pretty out of date. So Imagine Dragons, great band. They have a song called Demons. And the song's about someone trying to protect uh, someone they love. They're trying to protect them and shield them. But the singer recognizes that the greatest danger, the greatest threat, is the one lurking inside of himself. The lyrics go like this at one point. I want to hide the truth. I want to shelter you. But with the beast inside, there's nowhere we can hide. That's good reformed anthropology. That's good biblical theology. It speaks to a heart problem. A heart problem that we all have. We have seen the enemy and it, it resides within us. There's nowhere to hide. It's not the problem out there with them. It's the problem inside with me. That's the problem Jesus is trying to get at. It's the beast inside. And you can buy all the purity rings you want. You could try to walk uprightly in external ways and... You might obtain clean hands, but you will not be able to exert yourself to a clean heart. See, this is one of the fundamental mistakes that Christians have made through the ages, that we can cleanse ourselves. Martin Luther, the great leader of the Reformation, he wrestled with this. He tried to do this. He tried to strive his way to a pure heart. He, he wrote about it uh, when he was a monk. I mean, he was a great monk. <laughs> he was an exceptional monk. He wrote this. He said, I kept the rule, the, the rule of the, of the monastery, so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his sheer monkery, it was I. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. You see what he recognized. 
he realized that he was doing all of these things. He was striving to cleanse himself, to purify himself. But the problem wasn't out there with Luther. He recognized the problem was in here, in his heart. You can't strive your way to a pure heart. You can't change the beast inside. You can't keep the bananas green. So this week, I always look at life and say, uh, oh, can I get a sermon illustration out of this? My family is usually annoyed by all my efforts. But this week, my daughter, uh, she loves green bananas. She loves green bananas. But you can't, it's hard to keep green bananas green, right? So she researched this, and uh, so she read this thing about hanging bananas. If you hang the bananas, they'll stay green longer. Now, there was this whole thing about that the bananas think that they're still on a tree, but of course, bananas don't have brains, so they don't think that. But there is this whole scientific thing about it, right? That they apparently, they let off less gas. I didn't know bananas had a gas problem, but apparently they let off gas, and this causes them to go, uh, to turn yellow and brown and everything, right? So she hung these things up in her house. And yeah, they stayed green a little longer, but they turn yellow and they turn brown. You can't keep bananas green. You can't Strive your way to making your heart pure. There's something inherent in the nature of who we are that prohibits it, particularly when we are outside, when we are on our own, trying to do it on our own. We need something exogenous. We need someone exogenous to help us, to change us. We need to look outside of ourselves to be able to find that purity within ourselves. And that brings me back to Psalm 24. You see, the question there, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in the holy place? Well, there's only one answer to that question. This is the core of the Christian faith. Only Jesus can enter into the holy of holies. Only Jesus has a heart pure enough to stand in before God in the holy place. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place. Only Jesus can render you pure inside, can give you a pure heart. King David got this in his life, right? As he went through all of his failures, all of his sins, all of his transgressions, as he contemplated them, what did he do? What was his cry to God? Create in me, create in me a clean heart, O God. So often the Psalms talk about external things. Change this. Change my enemy. Change this problem. Change those who are insulting me and attacking me. But in this particular Psalm, David says, change me. I'm the problem. I need you, oh God, to change me, to change me inside. And I wonder, have you come to that realization in your life? The real problem we have is not out there. It's not with them. It's with us. We're the problem. And we need Christ to create in us a clean heart. Only Jesus can give you a pure heart. Change me. I'm the problem. 
That's how you get a pure heart. You trust in Jesus Christ, the only one who can ascend the holy hill, the only one who can enter the most holy place. You put your trust in him and you, you cry out to him and say, create in me a clean heart. But you might say to me, well, pastor, then what does that mean for my life? Does that mean I, you know, purity doesn't matter? Does that mean, uh, you know, I don't have to live for Jesus? Does it, does it matter at all? I mean, if Jesus does all this, what is my place? Well, Jesus calls you to follow him. That's what these Beatitudes are about. He says, I will create in you this clean heart and then live for me. Follow me. In July of 2019, Abigail Murish, she wrote a piece in, the Christ in Christianity Today entitled, Both Purity Culture and Hookup Culture Failed Me. And of course, she was writing in the wake of all this stuff going on with Joshua Harris and Nadia Bowles-Weber and all that kind of stuff. And she was writing about this tension in her own life, how she had followed this purity culture in the 90s and how it left her devastated, how it impacted her. She wanted to get married. She wanted to have children. She thought if she did these things that she was being told to do, that all those things would follow and God would give her a husband and a children, and children. And she recounts the disappointment when all that stuff didn't happen. And then she describes how she went to Purdue University and how she was there in the midst of a hookup culture, a different type of message that said, hey, free sex, have fun, enjoy it. You will be fulfilled and you will be happy. Just hook up and happiness will follow. Fulfillment will follow. And she also watched the devastating impact of that type of culture on her fellow classmates. She saw the emptiness and disappointment that that produced. And thus the title of her article, Purity Culture and Hookup Culture Failed Me. And then she decided to do something unusual. For a Christian, she decided to actually read her Bible, <laughs> to go back to the scriptures. She studied what it said about marriage and relationships and sexuality and all those type of things. And she wrote this in that article. She said, what I found there was initially disheartening, but ultimately liberating. There was no promise in scripture that if I just abided by a Christian sexual ethic, I would find a husband, marry him, and have kids with him. I was compelled to reckon with the fact that singleness was a very real possibility for life, not just a season, and that God called it good. And I discovered that scripture called me to purity, not as a means to a material end, but rather as an intrinsic good, an end in and of itself that was for my flourishing and well-being. Yes, that's it. When Jesus calls us to live for him, he's not calling us to do that, to strive to make ourselves pure. He's calling us to do that because it's for our well-being. It's for human flourishing, and it brings glory to him. That It does matter how we live. Pursuing purity in response to Christ's love matters in our lives. And it's not just about sexuality. That's how we talk about it all the time. But purity of heart is so much more than, it's about integrity. It's about keeping your word. It's about living as Christ has called us to live. And it's not just for one gender. It's for males and females as we live as the image bearers of Christ. And remember that it's inward. 
It's mostly inward focus. So often in Christianity, what we yell and complain about is what's going out out there with them. Look at what those people are doing. They're acting against God, and they're behaving in ways that are against God's word. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. He's calling you to focus on yourself. Clean up your own house. Purity doesn't come by denouncing other people. Purity comes by living according to what God has commanded us to do. So I really want to encourage you. If something destructive is going on in your life, if some sin is besetting in a way that is bringing you away from flourishing, away from well-being, away from what God has called you to be, Christ wants you to deal with it. And he promises to help you to deal with it, to enable you to do it. The Christian life is about transformation. You can change your behavior. On February 10th in our church, there's an opportunity to think about this. On February 10th, there is a program we are starting, led by Julie here. It's a program called Steps. And it's a program about getting at that kind of stuff, that stuff that's self-destructive, that stuff in your life, that something about you that you want to change because you know it's not in accordance with what God wants you to be. It's not in accordance with human flourishing and well-being. It's not in accordance with God's word. Here's an opportunity to actually work on that. And it involves acknowledging that you have the problem. It also involves acknowledging a sense of a higher power, that you need divine intervention, that you need Christ to enter into your heart and to create in you a new heart. I encourage you to think about that program and how it might help you. But remember, only Christ can give you a pure heart, that our purity is found in him, and that should give you hope. I'm much more mindful that I'm speaking to a lot of different people in a lot of different places, and I don't know who's going to watch this when, somewhere even in the future, someone may watch this video, and I want you to know Maybe you have made a mess of things in your life. Maybe you are living in ways that you know are not consistent with what God has called you to be or consistent with what makes human beings flourish in this world. Maybe you feel lousy about yourself. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, there's no way out of this. How do I escape the beast inside? There's no way out, no road back. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. The promise of the gospel, the promise of Jesus Christ, is that you can see God. You can be in his presence. And the way, the truth, and the life is the way there. Resting and trusting in Jesus, following him, is the pathway to seeing God. There is hope for you to have a clean heart, to have a second chance. To be reborn. Listen to the great preacher Charles Spurgeon. He said this. It is possible that you are saying, I shall never enter into the heaven of God. For I have neither clean hands nor a pure heart. Look then to Christ, who has already climbed the holy hill. He has entered as the forerunner of those who trust him. Follow in his footsteps and repose upon his merit. 
He rides triumphantly into heaven, and you shall ride there too if you trust him. Jesus Christ can create a clean heart in you. Place your trust in him, and you will see God. Let's pray.